0: Have you been on top of your doctor's appointments? There are a ton of screenings, tests, and vaccinations that we need to do at different ages. And let's be honest, it can be really hard to keep track of all of them. And sometimes we're looking out for other people too. Maybe it's your parents or grandparents, or you're thinking of your kids and teenagers. I know I am. Well, it's a new year, so you might want to start thinking about scheduling those checkups, especially if you're entering a new decade of life. Now, the Washington Post had a recent article titled Tune Up Your Body, a health checklist for every age. And we found it helpful, but it left us with some questions that we wanted to pose straight to a doctor. So we sat down with Dr. Sam Wainwright, a physician, pediatrician and health services researcher at University of Illinois, Chicago, and Dr. Stephen Rothschild. Professor and Chair of the Department of Family and Preventative Medicine at Rush University Medical Group. They walked us through the checkups and screenings that we need to know at every stage of life. And we started off by talking about blood pressure and what patients need to know. Here's Dr. Wainwright.
1: So I think the first thing for blood pressure, really for any age, though the numbers are a little bit different for younger children, is normal is less than 120 for the top number. 80 or lower for the bottom number. Okay. Um, and So 120
0: over 80, that's still the, the standard.
1: Still the standard. You know, the numbers we start to worry about are numbers where they're really above 140 above or above 90 on the bottom number. There's that little gray area there in the middle that we can sort of talk about and monitor. But those are sort of your breakpoints. is you want 120 over 80 or less, 140 over 90 or above. You should definitely be talking with the
0: doctor. Mm, okay. So uh, are people at higher risk? Uh, are, are there folks that are at higher risk of, of high blood pressure? Dr. Rothschild?
2: Well, as we get older, our blood pressures typically go up. So the prevalence of hypertension or high blood pressure goes up as we get older. But we see hypertension throughout the lifespan. We're screening children now and 4% of you know children and going up in adolescence. Have elevated blood pressure, so this is not an exclusively middle-aged or older adult problem.
0: I see. So heart disease, we know that's one of the leading causes of death among all Americans, uh, according to the CDC. One in every five deaths in the U.S. was from heart disease back in 2021. Wow. So, so screening for cholesterol is really important.
1: And I think that's the other side of you know we think about blood pressure, we think about cholesterol. All of this is tied together into this idea of how are your blood vessels working? How are they circulating blood throughout your body? How is that impacting all of your organs, your heart, your kidney, your brain?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The thing I think that patients, when they come and talk with us, they're like, why is this doctor focused on these blood pressure numbers, cholesterol numbers, things that you can't feel? Yeah. And I think that's one thing we think about a lot in primary care and prevention is we're focused on things often that you can't feel. Because those are the things that long-term impact how your body functions and what you might be at risk for in terms of heart attacks, strokes, dialysis, and kidney failure, things that eventually you will feel. And one of the reasons I think we're really excited to get on the air and talk with your listeners is thinking upstream, thinking about these checkups, finding some data for things that you can't feel or see can help us prevent the things that you don't want to feel or see later.
0: So when should men and women start getting screened for their cholesterol? For
2: instance, yeah, I, a lot will depend on family history and other pieces of it. I typically, in the 30s, start talking about lipid screening. Okay. But if someone tells me my dad, my mom had heart disease, you know, prior to age 50, we're going to start that process a little bit sooner. Mm, okay. So some of the advice tends to be general. When you look at guidance like the U.S. Preventive Services or the pieces that were in that Washington Post article. They're general, but everybody needs to customize that based on their own risk factors, their own lifestyle, and their own family history. Um, it's also an opportunity. I always think about screenings for blood pressure and cholesterol as part of a holistic approach, right? Are you smoking? Are you engaging in regular physical activity? So I want to take a holistic approach to this whenever possible.
0: I see. What, what is considered normal or, or healthy for adults, Dr. Rothschild?
2: In terms of cholesterol. cholesterol, ideally people use the 200 cutoff. Increasingly, we're looking at calculated risk based on what else is going on. If someone has diabetes, we're going to be much more aggressive about lowering. But in general, we use 200 for the cutoff. We'd like to see the bad cholesterol, the LDL, what mm-hmm. I call the lousy cholesterol, mm-hmm. to distinguish it from the good one, um, below 100
0: I see. Speaking of of diabetes, let's let's talk a bit more about type 2 diabetes, Dr. Wainwright. What should people know about that?
1: So diabetes is a disease of the pancreas and our body's ability to control the sugar levels in our blood, largely governed by what we eat, but in a complex array of interactions with their other organs. And your general degree of obesity and the fat you carry around in your body, complex systems. But fundamentally, type 2 diabetes is your body is unable to handle the amount of sugar that's coming in. You've got an imbalance between insulin, which is part of your body system for keeping sugars normal, Mm -hmm. and the sugar you're taking in we screen for that again, something that sometimes you can feel. And there are some symptoms of diabetes that are very obvious, like constantly being thirsty, constantly having to go to the bathroom. But often again, it's something that you can't feel. You can't, you don't have a nerve that tells you, oh, my sugar in my blood is running high. So we check your blood with, there's a couple of different tests. The one we most commonly use is something called an A1C, which I always like to explain is a test that looks at how sugary, are your red blood cells. You can almost think about it like rock candy. Mm. If you've got a lot of sugar in your blood, it's soaking your red blood cells, and we can sort of test how much sugar has been there over the last few months. As that number goes up, we start to consider that a disease state. The break point is really six and a half. Don't need to worry about too much about what that number means, but Mm -hmm. above six and a half is diabetes, and we'd start to think about changes in your diet, changes in your activity level, and as that number rises, or as it persists, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, we start to recommend a whole series of medications.
0: Uh, something that I've noticed, Dr. Rothschild, is, is more doctors are screening in recent years for anxiety and depression. Is Ab- there a standard for for screening that right now?
2: Currently, routine screening for depression using a two-item questionnaire is u- almost universal, certainly in our practice and most practices I see. the. Incidence of depression or depressive symptoms over the course of a year is north of 20%. Mm. And when we think about the preventive services we're talking about, we're talking about an investment for the future, right? Um, Blood pressure is going to take its effects 5, 10, 20 years into the future. If you're depressed today, it's really hard to take action for your own health for something down the road. So that becomes part of the equation. Are there things that are affecting your ability to plan, to invest, to take care of yourself?
0: Yeah, let's talk vaccinations, right? We, we know about this annual flu shot that we, you know, forever we <laughs> were supposed to take it. Uh, I know that not as many people have have taken it this this time around. So, give us the latest on that and on COVID boosters as well.
1: Absolutely, okay. and I feel like for reset, we should all just be channeling Dr. Arwady, who's <laughs> been who has come on here so many times to say it again and again get your flu shot, get your COVID shot. Even though it's, you know, January, winter is well upon us. I think everybody since Thanksgiving has had family and friends down with the count with some sort of cold or flu. It's not too late. We have annual flu shots that we should all be getting. And there's an updated COVID booster that came out this fall that more or less everybody is eligible for and should get. Mm -hmm. There's a new, you know, friend on the market. There's a Vaccination for a disease called respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. Yes, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have questions about that. I love that you
0: call it a new friend.
1: <laughs> oh, it's you know old friend for pediatricians, but a new option to protect yourselves. Yeah, there's vaccines for pregnant women. There's a vaccine for young infants, and there's also a vaccine for folks. 60 and older who have health conditions that might make it a bigger risk for them to get a severe respiratory virus infection.
0: I see. Um, That Tdap vaccine, the the tetanus, diphtheria, and uh, pertussis, or whooping cough, uh, are we supposed to get that booster every 10 years?
1: Every 10 years. um, As a pediatrician, I always remind people you normally get it when you're 11 and so your 10-year booster is normally up on your 21st birthday. So if you're going to the bar for the very first time when you're 21, think about, you know, in addition to that first drink, maybe getting your tetanus booster and then every anniversary after that. So 31, <laughs> 41, if you haven't had an injury or other reason, you would have gotten a booster sooner. It's on, it's on your 21st anniversary birthday anniversary.
0: I've <laughs> never thought of it that way. Turn 21, go get your booster and a, a drink. It's uh, not
2: what most 21-year-olds are thinking it about. It is not.
0: It's <laughs> not. Well, let, let's let's go to that younger crowd. I want to go to kids and, and teens, uh, Dr. Rothschild. So for parents listening uh, of young kids, um, they're heading to the doctor's office pretty often for checkups and shots just because, you know, we're the newborns and babies and toddlers are on that routine schedule. Anything that you think parents of young kids should keep in mind for those regular checkups?
2: Well, the immunization schedule is pretty well-established. A lot of pediatricians, family physicians, uh, will you begin your first appointment at, at two weeks, and we're rolling out those appointments for the next year or two. We're mm-hmm. scheduling them. So it's pretty routinized. Um, once you start preschool, daycare, you're usually being dragged into the doctor's office because you need that form filled out. Um, I think where I really, where we take our eyes off the ball is after kindergarten, because there's some really important opportunities, and in particular, I would highlight the HPV vaccine, uh, which we use to prevent uh, human papillomavirus, Mm -hmm. that's what HPV stands for, which can lead to cervical cancer in uh, persons with uteruses, you know, girls and women, and uh, can prevent Penile cancer and anal and oral cancers. Okay, and it's one of the two vaccines I try to emphasize to parents, along with the hepatitis B vaccine, that are cancer prevention. Yeah, it's not just about the infection; it's about preventing cancer, and that's a that's usually a new framework for yeah. most families.
0: I'm glad you went there. I was, I, was, I was going to ask about that because as a mom of teens, I've just noticed over the, the, the years as, you know, they became preteens and teens, that heavy emphasis on hepatitis B, making sure we were caught up with, I think there was like three doses um, in HPV What else can you add to that, Dr.
1: Wainwright? uh, HPV was also the one I was eager to sort of emphasize because I think there are some misconceptions that it's really just a vaccine for genital warts, which it is, but as we've been vaccinating more and more of the population, we've discovered that not only is it decreasing rates of cervical cancer, which is what its intended goal was, but we've learned over the last 20 years that all of these other cancers, cancers of the throat, cancers of the penis, cancers of the anus, All appear to be driven by the same virus. And so really, HPV vaccination, Gardasil is its trade name, is a powerful tool for preventing cancer. And it works best when it is given at a young age. The age now for starting the series is nine. Mm -hmm. And if you start at nine, it's only two doses as opposed to three if you start at the original 11 years old. And it works best before you're ever exposed to HPV. Because most people, if they've ever been exposed, which generally comes through sex, mm-hmm. the vaccine does not work as well, if at all, after that time. Mm-hmm. And so the reason, you know, a lot of parents are resistant because they're like, oh, my young nine-year-old isn't having sex. They don't need a sex vaccine. Especially why we're giving it to them then is because it's well before they're ever having sex. So we can protect them for their whole life from these cancers that can be devastating to Young men and women, often these cancers yeah, are happening in young admit, ages. I, I was
0: thinking that way as well. I was like, why, why does she need this? But it was explained to me in, in just that way. Let's move to the 20 to 39-year-olds. Uh, I know a lot of people in that age group think, oh, I'm healthy. I'm good. I don't need to do this test or that test. What family history, Dr. Rothschild, do, do you think that people in this age group should start considering when they're 20 to 39 In years terms old? of their
2: family history, mm-hmm. I'm saying, okay— Tell me about you know your parents your first degree relatives siblings brothers sisters and so on is there a history of heart disease is there a history of diabetes um, is there a history of cancer early in life because we want to adjust accordingly uh, super important I think also this is an opportunity to look in the mirror not literally but asking what are the health habits that I have what am I doing to keep healthy. Mm -hmm. In our teens, people, you know, struggle with weight and lifestyle, but many people are still active. They're doing high school sports or college activities and so on. And then life happens and we're much less active. We're eating on the go. We're grabbing things at lunch. And suddenly our health habits are not as rigorous and we can no longer take it for granted. So this is a time where I really encourage people to say, what are your health goals? You know, look at mom and dad. Is that what you want to look like in 20 years? And, and how do we adjust accordingly?
0: Yeah. Uh, pap smears for women, right? Mm-hmm. These start at 21. Yes. Is my understanding. How often are you supposed to get one? Is it once a year? Is it once every two years? Why does it keep changing? <laughs>
1: So that is exactly why it has become so confusing for people. And like Dr. Rothschild's been saying, all of this must be tailored to your own personal history and your family history and your risk factors. But, you know, when we were growing up, it was every year on the nose. That's changed pretty dramatically over the last couple of years. Right now, between 21 and 30, it's every three years. As long as they're normal results, you keep going every three years, Mm -hmm. starting at 30 it can actually space to every 5 years if it's normal and you were tested for HPV oh. and as long as you were negative for HPV which is increasingly likely if you were vaccinated as a child then if you are negative on the testing and negative for HPV you're
2: good for 5 years.
0: 5 years?
2: Which is wonderful. Yeah. It's the payoff for Sounds that HPV risky, vaccine. It's risky though. If,
0: I feel like something can get missed. Cervical cancer historically
2: has always been very slow. Progression, so we see multiple stages before the cervical changes even become cancerous. But with the elimination of HPV through the vaccine, through the reduction of it, that's why that spacing is there. So one of the things I tell moms in particular is, you know, how you used to have that, get that pap every year, and how much you really didn't enjoy it. Right. You can prevent that in your daughter by giving her the HPV vaccine today.
0: Yeah, that, that is actually a really good point. Uh, Settle this for me. Should women have both a primary care physician and an OBGYN? Does it matter?
1: I I don't think there's a settling. And I think these are fields that work in collaboration and in concert. But I think there are many things that embody a whole person's health that's beyond simply sexual health or the health of your sexual organs. And... Women are more than just a uterus and a cervix. They're whole people and should get full spectrum attention to all of their health needs, all of their health screenings, which can be done. A large part of it can be done through sort of women's health and general obstetrics and gynecology. Mm -hmm. But I would say every person should have a primary care doctor, whether or not that's an internist, a family physician, Um, they're... Is And this is especially as we were talking about folks in their 20s, even when you don't have something wrong, having a place that you know you can go for screenings and for check-in to establish a relationship and build trust or a person that you've then met that you can call when mm-hmm. something is amiss or awry you want to start that relationship before you need us. Yeah. And I, I know this is probably, you know, two primary care doctors mm-hmm. here saying, come and see us, but we really mean it. We want to see you before you need us, because then you'll know us when something comes up and you won't be afraid of coming in.
0: Before we take a pause, I want to touch on something that uh, is in the after 39, uh, age 39 group, uh, eye exams. So we we know about those complete eye exams that we we get or routine eye checkups rather Um, to get glasses or contacts, Dr. Rothschild. The American Academy of Ophthalmology is recommending, though, doing an eye disease screening when you're 40. What are they looking for? What are they screening for? Um,
2: Given the prevalence of hypertension and diabetes that we've talked about, those are diseases of the blood vessels that can affect the retina. And they can be associated as well with increased intraocular pressure, eye pressure, called glaucoma. And sometimes we go, well, wouldn't I detect that by my vision getting wonky? And the reality is no. Uh, Glaucoma, you're losing the outside, the peripheral um, vision. Mm -hmm. And you may not realize it until your first car accident. Or the retinal damage may be happening earlier. I've had a number of referrals from eye doctors who said, Steve, I'm seeing eye damage on this patient that looks like they may have high blood pressure and they've never seen a primary care physician. Mm. So it works both ways. And speaking of you know, collaborating
1: with all of the different sort of health providers, just like with obstetrics, I have had many sort of patients have diseases uncovered or clues for something that might be going wrong with a dentist or an eye doctor. So these folks are looking at just one part of your body, but there's clues hiding there sometimes that we might not pick up just meeting you. And that can be a really key person in your own personal ecosystem of people looking out for you.
0: All right, let's jump to the phones. We've got some listeners who've been waiting to reach out. Here's Paul in Humboldt Park. Hey, Paul, welcome to Reset. Hey, how's
1: it going? Thanks for taking my call. So I'm 38 years old. I was just curious, when is a good time to start testing for, like, colon cancer?
0: Do you want to take that one, Dr. Rothschild?
2: I would love to. Um, This is a personal one for me because my dad had colon cancer at 47. So Mm -hmm. incredibly important question. Um, Until recently, the guidance was colon cancer screening starting at 50. About two years ago, the guidance moved back to 45. Um, And again, all depends on risk factors. Uh, if you have a family member, like I do, it's 10 years before they were diagnosed. So, uh, if you don't have that family history, Paul 38, you can look forward to this at 45.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for calling, Paul. Uh, I think we've got a related question from Adonis in Uptown. Hi, Adonis. Thanks for calling.
1: Hi. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, my question is similar, um, uh, My father, 10 years ago, he passed from colon cancer, Mm -hmm. and uh, he also had some problems with his kidney before the diagnosis. So I'm currently 28, so I'm just curious about, uh, is there an age where I should get um, tested or screened, or are there specific signs or symptoms that I should look out for?
2: So first off, um, condolences on your dad and your loss. Uh, Again, the guidance is typically 10 years before his age of diagnosis. So do you know about how old he was?
1: Uh, So he passed when he was 54, and he was diagnosed a year before that. So around.
2: So certainly early 40s would be when I would begin to think about, you know, recommending colon cancer screening. And uh, we were talking offline before. That may be a colonoscopy. That's sort of the gold standard that people hear about but can also be a little bit difficult to access because of needing to miss a day of work to get it done and having to typically schedule that six or nine months out at most medical centers. We now have the stool test, the uh, fecal immunoglobulin test, or FIT test, also called colaguard by the brand, which is a reliable test that can be initiated and repeated every three years if negative. Um, at 28, you're probably more than fine right now unless there are other uh, family history of cancer that we haven't talked about. But eating a high-fiber diet, staying active, these are things that also will benefit you.
0: Thanks, Doctor. Let's talk more about cancer screenings. Uh, I'm curious about breast cancer. Um, How early uh, could people start getting tested for it if they have a strong family history? And, And how often should we be getting, as women, these mammograms?
1: So, I will sort of leave the strong family history question on the table because there's, depending on the the degree of the number of relatives, the degree of risk, the aggressiveness of the cancers, those are things that if you have that history, you should certainly be talking to an oncologist or a specialist in cancer screening. Okay. Because there's sort of additional testing that one might do that wouldn't be applicable for everybody. But general screening for this, just like cervical cancer screening has changed and is different than it maybe was five or 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So for the longest time, it was start screening at 40 and get an annual mammogram. Mm -hmm. And then there was a lot of debate amongst the medical community, and it confusing as heck for patients, where then we moved it to 50, but some people it was still 40, and some people it was annual, and some people it was every other
0: year. But I'm hearing a lot more stories these days of women in their 30s finding out they've got stage three breast cancer.
1: And that's exactly what we've sort of seen across our society is that we have noticed that there has been an increasing rate of breast cancer in younger women. And so the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force just a few months ago changed the guidelines. They're not officially updated, but it's the sort of official draft where women should start getting breast cancer screening at 40 back to what it was 10, 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. because we're seeing actually that rates are going up in younger women, and we need to be more aggressive about catching these early. And
0: self-exams are still important, yes?
1: Self-exams, there isn't as much evidence that it works for detecting as many cancers as we would want. However, I tell every... So we used to say that every woman should be doing self-exams, and there's not a lot of evidence that that was that successful, but I do tell every patient that they should know their breasts. They should know if they feel something that is changing. That's always a reason to come and see us and potentially get a diagnostic test. So you should be familiar with your body. And the same is true for men and testicular cancer. That peaks in the 20s and 30s actually is the, there isn't a national guideline, but the peak rate for a relatively rare cancer Mm -hmm. is in the 20s and 30s for men. And so just like with women saying you should be familiar with your breasts and know if you feel something changing or looking different with men, they should also be familiar with how their scrotum and their testicles feel. Mm -hmm. And even if guidelines don't say we should be checking with any sort of specific test, you should know your body in that way. And if you have a question and don't know what you're feeling for or how to do it, we are always here in primary care to sort of help demonstrate and explain those.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I also, as we talked about like colon cancer, I'm thinking of colorectal cancer. Black people are disp- disproportionately affected by that cancer as well. So I, I wanted to mention that. I mean, how do you address this with your patients, Dr. Yeah. Rothschild?
2: This is something that I talk about a fair amount because, and there has been some argument that, um, black patients should be considering colorectal cancer screening as early as 40. Not fully adopted, not in the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force yet, but certainly a consideration. And the example I typically cite because people recognize is Chadwick Bozeman, who mm-hmm. at you know, 44, 45, was dead of colon cancer. Yeah. And our current guidelines for screening would not have even touched him. Yeah. Um, so I want people to be aware of that. I want them to be um, aware of any change in you know, blood and stool, dark stools that seem abnormal. Uh, but it's, it is something people should be very much aware of and talk about their own concerns and risks with their physicians.
0: Yes. Well, on that note, I mean, last week on the program, we were talking about the, the relationship between patient and physician, right? And sometimes patients feel like their physicians don't understand them. And that their experiences, uh, you know, like they're not being listened to as they share their experiences with them. So talk more about that, Dr. Raymond. how how patients can advocate for themselves, especially if there's existing mistrust with the doctor.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's this relationship is about more than a checklist. And I think that's one thing I want everybody listening to to think about and to kind of take away as you think about your health in the new year is you can download the U.S. Preventative Services app. You can see everything that they recommend. You could walk into a testing facility and ask for many of these things. But fundamentally, seeking health in the long term is about finding a relationship with a doctor that is based on trust and mutual understanding, someone that you feel does truly listen to you, and that relationship should start not when something has already gone wrong or when you're already scared and fearful or seeing blood in your stool or found a lump in your breast. Mm-hmm. You want to find the person that you trust to walk with you through those challenging moments upstream. And the other part of that is we know that the healthcare system has been infected with white supremacy for its entire existence, and has manifest a lot of harms in people of color, Mm -hmm. in women, in minority groups. And so I always start this conversation by saying, like, we aren't deserving of trust just because we say so. And we've shown a lot that we have huge mountains to climb for really being advocates for justice and equity in our patients. And as patients, you should demand that of your doctors. Demand someone that listens to you that's trying to make sure that you have access to the very best care, no matter your circumstances in life, no matter your ancestry, no matter your skin color.
0: Yeah. STD testing, Dr. Rothschild. This isn't just for young adults, right? Even people in their 60s and older should be getting tested?
2: I think people 60s and older who are sexually active absolutely should be tested. And, um, Sometimes we have our biases about older adults and what they do and do not do, but STD testing remains important as long as people are sexually active, especially if they are seeing multiple partners.
0: Sticking with older adults, when do you recommend that people start testing for hearing loss if they've got a concern?
1: So I generally when people start in Medicare at 65, you should get a routine general hearing screen. But any time in life, if you think your hearing's going, it is certainly reasonable to go see an audiologist and get a screening audiogram.
0: Is there something that they should watch out for if, if, when it comes to hearing loss?
1: A classic one that I hear from patients or often from patients' family members is the TV is constantly getting turned up louder and louder oh. or the stereo in the car is turning up louder and louder and the older person doesn't notice. The other people I would think about, and this is very true in Chicago, particularly down on the south side where I work, there's a lot of people who have been exposed to industrial noise. People who worked in the steel plants in Indiana, some of the other large facilities down on the southwest side, if you were exposed to loud noises, police officers, hearing firearms being discharged, mm-hmm. any of those people should think about getting a hearing screen just in due course, because I have found a lot of those folks are having subtle hearing loss.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. What about memory loss, Dr. Rothschild? I mean, what, what would that cognitive screening consist of?
2: It, you know, can be relatively brief. In terms of we often use a six-item questionnaire, there are longer questionnaires as well. Uh, one of the advantages that came out through the Affordable Care Act was the Medicare wellness visit, which requires a cognitive screening. Uh, cognitive screening, again, is very individualized. Mm-hmm. Someone who has uh, you know, advanced education, who is highly literate, and they start having deficits— Some of these routine screenings are going to miss them because they're coming from a higher level. So it really, again, has to be customized. But a standardized cognitive assessment is reliable. They can be reliable for everybody. And I typically do it as part of that Medicare annual wellness visit.
1: Well, well, go ahead. I mean, that ties into, again, what you brought up about equity and feeling really heard Yeah, is this, I think, in a multicultural city like Chicago comes up all the time that our assessment tools are built for higher degrees of literacy, native English speakers. And I'll tell you, in my practice, Up to 60% of the patients I see are neither of those things. And I think that's where we have to really advocate as a society and a system for more doctors from diverse backgrounds, Mm -hmm. from people who speak other languages besides English, and for tools and systems for helping to screen people with diverse abilities, diverse languages, diverse sort of educational backgrounds. Because it can be really hard if you or a family member are worried about cognitive decline. Some of our tools don't work that well in subtle cases or, you know, Mm -hmm. people from, you know, different backgrounds.
0: Yeah, great points, Dr. Wainwright. Leave us with this, Dr. Rothschild, final advice for people scheduling their doctor's appointments this year.
2: I would say, before you walk into that office, what are my personal goals? What are my biggest concerns? Write them down. Begin with that. Doctor, these are the things I'd like to make sure we address today and take control over that encounter. Because by doing so, you begin to own your own health, setting your own goals, and working on a comprehensive plan that will develop over time.
1: You've heard us talk about 85 different things that could be part of pursuing health and wellness in this year. And I absolutely would echo that, that if you walk into the doctor's office, we will start screening your blood pressure, checking your blood sugar, talking about labs and screenings. But if you come to us knowing this is what I'm worried about, this is what I'm scared about, this is what I want to improve this year.
2: Only
0: makes the appointment that much more effective.
2: Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah.
0: We'll leave it there. Dr. Stephen Rothschild and Dr. Sam Wainwright, thank you both so much for answering my questions and our listeners. Thank you. This episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Micah Yasin and it was edited by Meha Ahmed and Ethan Schwab. If you liked this conversation, we'll check out our full catalog of interviews at wbez.org slash reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again soon.